All right, so today's topic, again, I know it was, I was gone for a couple of weeks, and hopefully had a nice time with Father Wanta. He's a good, happy, intelligent young man. But we're going to return to the sort of course material on the four marks of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And as you may know, today's session is Catholic, right? One holy, Catholic, that's the third of the four, quote, marks of the church. As a little refresher, remember the four Marks of the church are the basic identifying characteristics of the church. How you know the church is the church versus not the church. As we know, even in the time of sacred scriptures, as the Apostle St. John said, there are some who have come out from us, though they are not from us. Or as the Lord says, in certain days people will say to you, oh look, here he is, or there he is, do not believe them. Right? So on and so forth. So ways we can identify what is the church? So I want to start with a quotation from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, for our definition and our understanding of what does it mean that the church is Catholic. This can be helpful because in the world of denominational nomenclature, how we call the various denominations in a pluralistic society, we are generally referred to as the Catholic Church. So, well, what religion are you? You would naturally say, oh, I'm a Catholic. Right? And people sort of understand that means you're, you know, you're Roman Catholic of the Latin Rite and so on and so forth. All right? But that's, that's a n- name that we have in recent function. All right? So what does it mean to be Catholic, properly speaking? So Acts chapter, yes, Acts chapter 1, beginning on verse 6, this is the accounting of the ascension. When they had gathered together, they, meaning the 12, right? Well, the 11 at this point. So asked him, asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right. So this is forever haunting them. It haunted them before, right? Jesus knew they wanted to come and carry him and make him king, but he passed out of their midst and so on and many other references. Well, now, now that you have, you know, defeated death and resurrected, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He, Jesus, answered them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority. Hmm? You don't get to know this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So there in that passage, right, 1, 6 through 1, 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is the heart of the Catholicity of the church, that it is the witness to the one faith throughout all of the earth. I'll give a simple quote. This is called the Catechism of St. Pius X because that pope published a little Q&A catechism. It sounds Baltimore catechism-like, but it was published quite a bit before then. So the question number eight in this little book is, what is the Catholic Church? Answer, the Catholic Church is the union or congregation of all the baptized who, still living on earth, profess the same faith and the same law of Jesus Christ, participate in the same sacraments, and obey their lawful pastors, particularly 
the Roman pontiff, right? So you'll be my witnesses, the one faith and sacraments and one law all over the face of the earth. If you move forward, it has question 18. Why is the church called Catholic? The true church is called Catholic or universal. Okay, now this is important. We take a sort of a, a transliteration of the Greek word katholikon and use it as Catholic. It's the anglicization of katholikon, Catholic. Catholicon does mean universal, but universal in what sense? And here's the important definition. The truth is called Catholic or universal because she embraces the faithful of all times, of all places, of all ages and conditions, and all people are called to belong to her. Right? That is the sense. So it's not universal in the sense of the universe expanding everywhere, but it is the, the union of the faithful of all times and all places. The gospel is for all peoples. So you might say, right, because when we get into their various Greek words, because there is a Greek word, universorum, meaning universal, meaning absolutely everywhere. Catholicon, meaning universal, really means universal as in it's the whole of the thing. Right? Uh, I, if I eat the entire pie, I have eaten the universal, the catholicon pie, all of what belongs properly to that. Right? Because, of course, sometimes... Catholic gets into, well, if Catholic means universal, it means that it should accept every single thing that there is. Well, that's not, obviously. So, all right, that's why the, you can't both say, well, Jesus is God and Jesus is not God, right? You have contradictory. One is a Catholic understanding, one is not a Catholic, just because they're understandings, because that'll sometimes, well, it's universal, it means all understand. No, 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 no. And of the faithful, of all times and all places, and so on and so forth. So that's why I want to work through the catechism's definitions of this. Not all of them, because the good thing about the catechism is it gets very explicative in particular. That's also the hard thing about it, is explicative in particular. Right? So this is paragraph 830 in the catechism. The word Catholic means universal in the sense of according to the totality, or in keeping with the whole, right? So that's how it is universal. It encompasses the totality of the doctrine of Christ, or it is of the whole of the life of Christ. First, the church is called Catholic because Christ is present in her. Where there is Christ Jesus, there is the Catholic Church. In her subsists the fullness of Christ's body united with its head. It is implied that she receives from him the fullness of the means of salvation which he has willed, correct and complete confessional faith, full sacramental life, and ordained ministry in apostolic succession. The church was, in this fundamental sense, Catholic on the day of Pentecost, and will always be so until the day of the parousia. Parousia is the end of the world. All right? So the church was Catholic at the moment of Pentecost because 
at the moment of Pentecost, it had correct and complete confession of faith, full sacramental life, and ordained ministry according to apostolic succession. That's what makes the church Catholic, right? Full and correct faith, total sacramental life, and ministry according to apostolic succession. It has it according to the whole, right? So even though at that time the church hadn't gone to the face of the earth, or even very much of the earth whatsoever, it was still Catholic in that regard. Right? Now you're starting to see a little bit how the marks of the church are all bound together in the third mark of the church, that it is Catholic, right? Yes? When did the word Catholic start being used? I mean, the, the apostles didn't use it, right? So you won't find the Acts of the Apostles using the word Catholic. There is the text called the Didache, right? As a little sidebar, there's a text called the Didache or the Teachings of the Twelve Apostles, right? That dates to the late first century. The word Catholic appears in that as a mark of the church. So St. Peter does not use that phrase, right? St. Paul in 2 Corinthians does use that phrase. Now, he doesn't use it explicitly linked to the word ecclesia or church, but that notion is there even though. Does that make sense? All right, so, and it comes formally. Remember, the creed is formulated in 313. So that's when the first creed is formulated. Now, it was in usage in, like you have letters of Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna, who are in the 120s and the 190s. They're using the phrase Catholic Church. Now, they're immediately, like, St. Polycarp was taught by St. John the Apostle. So St. Polycarp, so it's reasonable that the apostles might have functionally used that word, but we don't have evidence of that in any manuscript of Scripture. Okay? Now, this is the, we get to the second sense of the understanding of the word Catholic. Secondly, it says, the church is Catholic because she has been sent out by Christ on a mission to the whole human race. The church is Catholic in the fundamental sense on the day of Pentecost because she has complete and correct confession of faith, full sacramental life, and ministry in apostolic succession. But the church is also Catholic because it is sent out by Christ on a mission to the whole human race. And now I'm going to read a long paragraph from the Second Vatican Council document called Lumen Gentium. All people are called to belong to the new people of God. This people, therefore, while remaining one and only one, is to be spread throughout the whole world and to all ages, that the design of God's will may be fulfilled. He made human nature one in the beginning and has decreed that all his children who were scattered should finally be gathered together as one. This character of universality, right? All the peoples, all the ages and cultures of the world gathered into one. This character of universality which adorns the people of God is a gift from the Lord himself, whereby the Catholic Church ceaselessly and efficaciously seeks for the return of all humanity and all its goods under Christ the head and the unity of his spirit. Right? So the church is for everyone. Now we have 
very like beautiful instances of that. What Greco-Roman culture contributed to the life of the church? How Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy expounded the understanding of the gospel. How Greek principles of architecture was the foundation stone of so much church building. And then as wider and wider cultures began to embrace the faith, how those realities came into art, architecture, hymnody, devotional life, so on and so forth. Now we in a modern area where things get communicated so quickly and easily tend to think that everything happens all the time. But really, you, know, you take, let's take something popular like the creche, the nativity scene. Right? Now you have St. Francis of Assisi, who in his own cultural understanding is very used to these, um, whatever you might call them, traveling plays, troops of people get together to convey a literary story in a visible, physical way, so that when he goes to the Holy Land and sees all these things, he has that similar idea. A very simple, frankly, these plays would be considered relatively low culture. This is not Shakespeare and high art and all of this, all right? It's fairly, so he has that sort of cultural reality that becomes the creche or the nativity scene, right? Now, we tend to think of that as it's always, you know, they've had, you know, Mary and St. John had a nativity scene at the second Christmas or whatever, right? Not, not quite. Because we live in a country where so many cultures have come, we also have very many cultural expressions of the faith that seem normative, right? So we have Gothic churches and Byzantine churches and Art Deco churches. That's kind of the American contribution architecturally. Anyways, you can decide whether you like it. I like it. Some people don't, right? Because we have all those, we can tend to think that they're everywhere, but not so, right? But what that common, correct, and complete confession of faith, full sacramental life, and ordained ministry and apostolic session, that's what binds together all of the various cultures, peoples, races of the earth into the one universe, right? According to the whole, that there is in every culture and people of the earth, there is something, if you will, baptizable right, in that culture. Right? What oriental cultures have contributed to Christian understanding of art, architecture, poetry, hymnody. Again, I don't want to get into all of this too much because um, modern life has kind of leveled everything such that we tend to think we have a very broad understanding of hymnody in American life, and actually we have a very narrow understanding of hymnody because of linguistic limit. We don't need to get into all of that right now. But anyways, you know, i just trying to say our American experience can be a little bit odd in all of this. One, because all the cultures of the earth more or less live here, and it's not hard to see expressions of that. But also there are very, what you might call, Americanized expression of that culture, right? There's something that, uh, because we are very technocratic and highly functional, and have been for a long time, like we went from wooden clapboard churches to beautiful stone and marble churches really quickly. In other parts of the world, it took them centuries to get to these, right? 
the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is this monumental Romanesque Byzantine, like it's the jamming together of two massive cultural architectural principles into one thing. And they did it in like 12 years, right? That would have taken a century plus to build normally. So we have a very quick. And so my point is not to say that we can't have any of this, but we just need to have an understanding that when the, the gospel inculcates in a particular place, you have total and complete and correct faith, sacramental life, and apostolic session in ordained ministry. You have to have that according to the whole, right? But then within that becomes all the peoples of the earth and their various expressions. And the point we should really hold in that doctrinally is to say that the gospel is not the province of the West. In a lot of, it's interesting, in a lot of um, secular universities, the study of Christianity will be placed in the study of Near Eastern religions, which is actually socioculturally fascinating, all right? Because you have a Messiah of a very small group of people, a very small but very zealous confessional group that now dominated the cultural landscape of cultures from here to kingdom come. So we can tend, you know, Hilaire Belloc has this, this comment, he has this pithy phrase where he says, the faith is Europe and Europe is the faith. I think that was a very aspirational but wrong-headed notion. It gets very, again, he was French-English, so it's very French of someone to think that sort of notion. But that is not of itself, right? And I'm a big fan of Hilaire Belloc, so I don't mean to dog him too, too much. But that's, that's something that can become um, too reductionist. Similarly, it becomes a little bit too projectionist if I decide that my culture dictates what the faith says, right? Because we have to understand that the first principle of Catholicity is correct and complete confession of faith, full sacramental life, and ordained ministry and apostolic succession. So that's the essential and first part of the whole. Then the embracing of all peoples, if you will, gets layered on to that. So I cannot say, my culture therefore changes the faith. My culture therefore changes the sacraments. My culture therefore changes what correct ministries. I can't do that because then I lose Catholicity. I break apart the whole, so I can make it a part of my thing. It, yes? Did it have with Constantine? Pardon me? Did that happen with, uh, was that Constantine? How do you mean? Well, when, they, when they used the pagan religions and mixed them in with the Catholic religion, for, you know, like... Uh, How did, again, you're, you're asserting some, uh, like, explain what you are asserting. This is commonly, this is a standard falsehood that is commonly asserted. So do you mind explaining what you mean when you say this? You said culture is not put into the Catholic faith. Right. Uh, depending on where, you know, what country you're from or whatever, but didn't Constantine do that with, uh, like, Eastern? No. Okay. I mean... Where have you heard that is false? Oh, well, Constantine did not I do that. said that, like, for Easter, they, they took the pagan rituals... False. 
that's, that's a false. That is a false, that is a history channel falsehood. <laughs> I mean, it is a, every single year on Christmas and Easter, history channel, when there used to be magazines, you know, magazine, Time and National Geographic would put all this nonsense. And that's what it is. It's historically made up. It's just made up whole cloth. They put someone who has a PhD on the TV to say it. Now, just a reminder, the one benefit of having a PhD is now you no longer have to take seriously anyone with a PhD. All the rest of us have to listen to them. Just because a PhD says it does not make it true. All the more so if they say it on the History Channel or A&E or whatever the case is because the statement you just said is broadly understood to be true by a large swath of people, yeah, and it is manifestly false. What is not manifestly false is how are we going to build churches? Well, we know how to build large Roman buildings. Did the Christians build churches like pagan temples? No. Right. Did they build them like Roman buildings? Yes. Does that make sense? Quite so. Well, do you know the difference between a church and city hall? Sure. Yeah. Do you know the difference between a church and a shopping mall? Okay. Right. So like that. Now, what we would call that we're, we're wandering a little bit, but this might be instructive, right? Romans had buildings called basilicas, right? No temple was built like a basilica. A basilica was a meeting place. It could be a meeting place for commerce. It could be a meeting place for education. It could be, a, but it was, right, a large rectangular building that had one place where the most important activity happened and had a singular point of entry and egress. Well, when Christians wanted to build churches, they said, this suits what we want to do. We orient our principal place towards the east. That's our theological understanding. The east is the direction of the rising sun. That's a Christian notion. Were Roman basilicas built facing east? No. So there's the central place. That becomes where we put the altar. And that's when you're facing the altar, you're facing the east. And here's where the people are, right? Basilicas were really great for projecting sound. So when you have to project a sermon or you have to project hymns, it works really, really well. Right. Does that have anything to do with paganism? No. So on and so forth. Right. And all this nonsense about Easter and Christmas is precisely that. Absolute, abject, historically, manuscripturally verified nonsense. Wow. Right. You would say it was just a coincidence then? It is a modern manufactured... This whole notion of the soul invictus for Easter, that is in Edward Gibbon's 18th century. There is nothing in Roman antiquity of any sort to give any evidence that there was this soul invictus feast day proximate to the Christian dating of Easter. It is made up whole cloth. But we do know, like, winter solstice is close to Christmas. I well, okay, Christmas yes. So Pardon me? Would say that was just a coincidence. Or sure, well, I would say though I would say that's a well, providence that 
the birth, I think that, right, in the Western world, like, God uses all of creation providentially. I would say God wants the Messiah to be born as the light is getting greater in the world. It's just a natural connection. The birth of the light of the world is as the light is getting greater. And so I wouldn't say that's coincidence. I would say that's providence. What I deny utterly from manuscript and history and archaeology is that Christians in the 4th century backdated the celebration of Christmas to put it near to the winter solstice. That's false. Polycarp proves that's false. Ignatius of Antioch proves that's false. The Didache proves that's false. So on and so forth. But that's what's asserted in popular commentary. Does that make sense? Because what I'm, t- what I'm arguing is contemporary... I bring up the name Edward Gibbon. Have you ever heard of that name, Edward Gibbon, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire? Edward Gibbon, who was the son of the governor of England, of a high-going Anglican and whatnot, had a deep conversion, wanted to become a Catholic. It was with instruction when his incredibly wealthy uncle told him that he would cut him out entirely of his inheritance if he converted to the faith. He recanted his conversion, went for lack of, went on a pleasure cruise of Paris, visiting uh, various places of various activities that are immoral, came back and wrote this multi-island book called The Decline and Fall of, Rome, of the Roman Empire, wherein he lays the decline of the Roman Empire and its dissolution squarely on the shoulders of Christianity and asserts all sorts of nonsense, just asserts it. Wholesale, just wrote it down because he wanted to. He has no footnotes, he has no quotations, he has no archaeological evidence, right? But because he was a very prominent figure and his father was a very prominent figure, his book took great effect. I would would give it an akin to the Dan Brown, uh, what was that book called? Da Vinci Code. The people took Da Vinci Code as, for lack of a better term, gospel truth. Like everything, when it was made up, it just totally, totally made up. When the author of that book says in the very first page, this is a work of fiction. And so Gibbons, and you have people now, you have university professors and cable broadcasters who take basic tropes from Gibbons' book and then go write a dissertation on it. So that's where it originated. That's where you get all this stuff from. Protestant... Uh, especially uh, evangelical apologists are keen to seize on this kind of thing because they think it's going to denude Catholicism. Catholicism made up date of Christmas, right? This train of who cares about Christmas and all this, that, and there. That's just Protestant, or that's just Catholic, neo-pagan, whatnot. That Constantine put on this, right? Because Constantine was, Constantine was a pagan, that's true but that Constantine projected paganism into Christianity is just nonsensical. So what, what can we do as Christian readers, Catholic readers, to ensure that we, that we don't swallow everything we read? Well, I think if you want to read a history that is both accessible and yet comprehensible, all right? Accessible meaning an ordinary person can read it, but also comprehensive, it covers everything. A man named Warren Carroll, in English, Warren Carroll has a five-volume history of the church. Incredibly well-researched. Again, 
This gets tough because we're in a world where nobody believes anything. And so footnotes become, you know, footnotes are beautiful and hard. Because when it's footnoted, you have to go read the footnote. And then what is the footnote? Is it righteous or non-righteous? And so on and so forth. But I would put that in English. The Warren Carroll five-volume series is that. His wife condensed it into a one-volume called Christ the Lord of History, I think, is that book. That's a one-volume. It won't give you the comprehensive nature of, of all of this. I'm going to finish with one last, and I sense we can open up to more questions, all right? But the last point that the Catechism wants to make on this, and I think it's important because it has a section that says, each particular church is Catholic, right? So starting in paragraph 832, the Church of Christ is really really present in all legitimately organized local groups of the faithful, which insofar as they are united to their pastors are also quite appropriately called churches in the New Testament, right? Very famous, the book of... To the church in Laodicea, write this. To the church in Ephesus, write this. All right. Paul is writing to the church of God, which is in Corinth, and so on and so forth. All right. So that's what you're talking about. Local groups of the faithful, legitimately organized, united to their pastors, are appropriately called churches. In them, the faithful are gathered together through the preaching of the gospel and the mystery of the Lord's Supper is celebrated, the Mass. In these communities, though they may be small and poor, existing in the diaspora, people know the word diaspora, right? Spread out. You might have a a group of... um, Filipino workers in an Islamic country formed together and they have a priest there and they formed a little community, right? So even in diaspora. Christ is present there through whose power and influence the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is constituted. In effect, what it's saying, wherever the faithful are gathered and the gospel is preached and the, the Eucharist is celebrated, the, the Catholic church is there. Like, So do you want to wear... Where is the Catholic Church most perfectly realized? At a, at a Mass, right? Mass, that's where, the, you've, that's where the Church, right? You want to find a concrete instantiation of the Catholic Church? That's where you find it, right? Now the phrase, particular church, which is, first of all, the diocese, refers to a community of the Christian faithful, in communion of faith and sacraments, right? Remember that, it's the core and complete faith in the sacraments, right? with their bishop ordained in apostolic succession. So that's, that's with reference to the principal definition of Catholicity. Correct and complete faith, the sacraments, and apostolic ministry, and ministry in apostolic succession. So the particular churches are constituted after the model of the universal church. It is in these and formed out of them that the one and unique Catholic Church exists. That's such an interesting. It is in these and formed out of them that the one and unique Catholic Church exists because the particular church exists all over the place. And might again, might have their linguistic differences, might have their cultural differences, might have artistic 
differences, so on and so forth. One might exist in a, a culture that's deeply imbued with Christianity, right? And so their mode of life reflects their deep, widespread cultural Christianity. Another one might held where the wider culture is not Christian or even antithetical to Christianity, so what is more important to them is going to look different than the other ones, right? Okay. Now lastly, particular churches are fully Catholic in their communion with one of them, the Church of Rome, which presides in charity. For with this church, by reasons of its preeminence, the whole church, that is the faithful everywhere, must necessarily be in accord. Now, as an injury, that quotation I just said, right? Uh, the church of Rome, which presides in charity, it is with this church, by reason of its preeminence, the whole church, that is the faithful everywhere, must necessarily be in accord. That quotation is taken from St. Irenaeus of Lyon in his work that we still have the manuscript of called Adversus Heresis, Against the Heresies. What year? St. Irenaeus is writing in the year 210. 210. This is very early in the life of the church that they are talking about, the preeminence. So this is before, this is a century before Christianity is legalized in the Roman Empire. But you still have to be united to the church which is in Rome. Indeed, from the incarnate words descent to us, all Christian churches everywhere have to be held and hold the great church that is here at Rome to be their only basis and foundation, since according to the Savior's promise, the gates of hell have never prevailed against her. That interesting is a quote from a man named St. Maximus the Confessor, who's writing around the year 300, a little before the League of Christianity, and is, is not, is he, he wrote that when he was in Rome, but he himself was not a Roman. He was a Greek who grew up in what we would now call today the Orthodox churches. I mean, back then they didn't have those distinctions, right? So those are two people, not Romans as such, early in the life of Christianity that are reminding us that the particular church finds its full Catholicity in accord with its union with Rome, right? Rome is, as it were, the center of the, of the wheel. If your spoke breaks off from that, you're going to be something else, so on and so forth. All right. It's 8.06. We've had some questions, but we have some time for any more questions, generally or particularly. Well, going about that universality, I, I don't know... Discussed things with some people who are not Catholic who claim that, like, the Zaylstrism, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is older than Catholicism, and that Catholicism is just taking things from religions that were older than them. Is there any truth to that? Can I rephrase that? Because my cousin would say it that why do you Catholics steal all the pagan holidays? That is how. Like, so my question to you off of this one is how do you lovingly to that. So, okay, these are these two statements together or individually? Because we can address Zoroastrian in particular or we can address. Or together, whatever you want to do. Does Zoroastrian exist as a constituted hierarchical religion before Christianity? Sort of. 
People will say, well, because Zoroastrian was monotheistic, because the number of identity points that Catholicism shares with Zoroastrianism is basically monotheism. There are really no other doctrinal points that are shared. But I think you might say there's a common morality. Right? What I find interesting about that is, I might say, well, why would you say it stole from Zoroastrianism and not say it stole from Judaism? which is also um, monotheistic. Zoroastrian is not Trinitarian. Zoroastrian does not believe in efficacious sacrifice, like the Mass. Zoroastrian does not believe in the resurrection of a Messiah. What precisely was stolen again? <laughs> there you go. So that's... Uh, there are many religions older than Christianity. Christianity came from Judea, right? I mean, yeah, quite so, yes. So, to quote our Savior, salvation is from the Jews. So, is there religions older than, I mean, can you, because Ryan tried to look it up, it was very unclear if you can prove one religion older than another, um, or where it was found in records. I mean, what is the oldest religion, you know, you know that can be proven? That's a fantastic question, because in terms of extant religious books, the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, is the oldest extant religious book. That doesn't mean it was the oldest practice. I mean, of course, of course, the Hebrew Bible believed that they were practicing some form of religion from the jump. Because even in the Hebrew Bible, there's not an organized practice of religion for some thousands of years into the Revelation. So the revelatory book of the Jew religion does not have organized religion in its own revelation until many millennia into the whole thing. What organized religions were being practiced before that? Maybe some form of what we would call Buddhism. Again, that gets, that gets difficult because virtually all of contemporary Buddhism is placed on a Buddha who existed in the third century B.C., which is very old, but... So 300 years later than Christ? No, 300 years before Christ. Yeah. Uh, Christianity has never laid its truth claims on being the oldest, ever. Yeah, why does that matter? Yeah. That's what I would ask that person. I think for some people, they feel it's just another religion that popped up out of a bunch of other religions. They don't At one level, it certainly is another religion that popped up. Yes, absolutely, that's true. Right. But that of itself doesn't make it false. If there is a person who is legitimately interested in the truth claims of religion, then they are duty-bound to seek those truth claims. If they want to watch a YouTube video so they continue to drink and fornicate and live the way the life that they want to live it, well, that's not quite the same thing as the search for truth. Now, to those who would say, why do the Catholics steal all the good pagan stuff? I would ask the question, well, like what? Like what, like, what, do, you, what do you mean? Like the, the Festival of Lights, right? And we now have Christmas, right? What's the Festival of Lights? I'm not really sure. Right, neither are they. Because it's not, because it's not real. That's my whole point. They don't know what it is because it isn't real. Uh, did pagans living in the Germanic lands like to decorate, like, 
Are Christmas trees Christian? If you want to talk about lifting a pagan thing, the Christmas tree is what you'd go for. That's why the Christmas tree is in, frankly, a great minority of Christian cultures that celebrate Christmas. If anyone has universalized the Christmas tree, it's Madison Avenue, not the Catholic Church. Until 1957, of course, Santa Claus didn't exist. And the Christmas tree could not be found anywhere except for, you know, well, not as he does now, right? It's when he first appeared on a Coca-Cola bottle. Right. St. Nick and his, all right, an American derivation of St. Nicholas, since we had all made so many dominations, created into amalgam. St. Santa Claus, as we know him, is a product of American marketing. Christmas trees across the world are a product of American commercialism, not Catholicism. The first Christmas tree showed up in St. Peter's Square in the year 1984. Because John Paul II came from a place where they had Christmas trees and wanted one in the square. I think it's perfectly lovely and wonderful. Is that stealing pagan? I mean, no, we believe Christ was born as the light of the world a long time before there was a Christmas tree. I'm not dogging the... I love Christmas trees. I've got three of them in my house. I love them. If you go to Japan during December, J- Japan has more Christmas decorations yes, by a right. factor of four than <laughs> our country does. Yes. Of course, and who? They have no clue what it is. They just—it's beautiful. It's they—it's. It's who crazy. built? Who built Japan after the Second World War? Yeah, we did. America did. So again, my point is. <laughs> what I what I would say to be concrete is, and I'm not trying to make fun of people because people give. What I think are well intended, but not deeply thought out objections, like. Why do they steal pagan... Well, 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 what? That's what I would ask. And then can we have a serious conversation about what those things might be? Well, now we know that Gibbons in the year 400 or whatever wrote it in a book that's all BS with no footnotes. Well, again, I'm giving a statement that has now been expanded on over and over and over and over. I don't want to lay all... like I want to lay a lot of it at Edward Gibbons. Because... The, a lot of tropes that are in contemporary critiques of Christianity's cultural expressions are repeats of that book. Now, what I was talking about with Christmas was, I thought that I had heard that the dating of, the beginning of Christ's life was like three years off. So here you're talking about the Julian calendar versus the Gregorian calendar. Is that what you're referring to? When, okay, because was Christ born in the year zero or the year three BC? Yeah. Right. Now, that is a fascinatingly nerdy <laughs> conversation <laughs> to have. Why does it matter? Well, it's because I thought that it was related to this pagan question, and then you said something else. So comes into public life. The calendar that's used by everyone was called the Julian calendar, right? By one of the emperors named Julius Caesar, all right? He reorders the empire, he reorders the calendar, right? His birth month could be called July, Julio. Right? Now, the dating, the, uh, those dates were according to the cycles of the moon, 
right? It was a lunar calendar, right? The problem with the, the cycles of the moon are not identical to the cycles of the sun. There was a problem in that calendar where they couldn't make up for what we call now the leap year. So it was a time when they would eventually basically every 10 years have to tack on so many more days to sort of make up with the rotations as they saw them. So they had built-in inefficiencies into it. So Gregory the Great, who was a smart guy with a lot of smart guys, decides to reform the calendar. Instead of a lunar calendar, it's a solar calendar. So he keeps 12 months, like the lunar calendar did, but calculates days according to the rotation of the sun. That becomes a little bit more of a precise calendar. Now, because you're going to do that over the course of time, your days are going to multiply up. So you have to figure out what's going to be the start of history, basically. And he decided, well, I'll say what we purport to be the year of the birth of Christ will be considered the start of history. So we'll have B.C., before Christ, and A.D., year of the Lord, Anno Domini, dated from what we believe to the year of the birth of Christ. Now, it's interesting, the three years kind of thing, I'm not super, like, I'm not down the line knowledgeable in this, but this was something that began to be asserted in the 1800s, that is it possible, as people went back, because again, you have universities that they have to write PhDs about something, I'm not saying every PhD is wrong, that's not my point, I'm saying people start writing, well, did Gregory the Great do the lunar calculations back to the year that Christ was born correctly. Right, that's what it is. And there's a dispute as to whether he did or not. So is it possible that Christ was born one or two or three years, well, basically three years, the other one, the three, three years earlier than year zero, that's possible. But that doesn't have anything to do with like paganism or festivals of lights or soul invictus or any of this other nonsense. Okay, I did he do his did he do his math correctly? I thought maybe that was linked with the dating of, the, of Christmas. Okay. The dating of Christmas predates the legalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire. The big beef that the Orthodox have is they still keep the Julian calendar. So, like, you'll have Orthodox Christians who have all their dates different than ours, not because we date them differently. They use a different calendar that puts it off days, right? That's why their Easter is different. Yes. And their Christmas. And their Christmas is different. So they, they put forward the argument, Christ God chose to be born under the aegis of the Julian calendar, so Christians should use the Julian calendar. Okay. Good enough for me, right, exactly, that sort of a, that sort of a, not a lot of people hold to that anymore, but that was, all right, right that's, so that's, but that, but, so that is an academic mathematical question, but is not a, um, a, a paganism and so on and so forth. Other questions or comments or curios? I'll close with a little aspirational commentary. I think one thing, as we are entering a period of um, 
whatever people want to, like, whether it's cultural universalism or cultural collapse, it's hard to know which one will it will be. Will it be the grand unification of all cultures into one, or will it be the rending of all cultures and back into their particularity, right? It's, right now, the... The world seems to be an open question on that one. Once upon a time, we thought we were at the quote-unquote end of history. Now it seems maybe not. One thing that should be aspirational for us is the gospel does embrace all peoples, all um, yeah, races, language, tongues. I forget how the preface goes. Right, that all the nations and races of the earth, the gospel is for. And even though we come from a particular cultural instantation of it, we remember we are part of the Catholic Church, which means embracing the whole. So with great peace and joy in our hearts. Right? That's why we tend not to evangelize people with the Advent wreath. But once we do evangelize them, they might like the Advent wreath. It's nice, right? You bring the message of salvation to them in a peaceful way. So thank you for your time here tonight. If there's not anything else, we'll close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Mary, keep us always faithful to what the Lord our God has revealed. By your gracious intercession, obtain grace for always to be cheerful members of the Catholic Church, seeking ever a holy life. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.